Well, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 in our Bibles. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about how the Bible teaches that before we were saved, sin was blinding us to the glory of Jesus Christ. I heard a pastor use the analogy, it's like cataracts. I hope none of you have cataracts, but as you get older, I've heard that you can have cataracts which grow up over your eyes, so your, your eye, eyesight is diminished and you can even go blind with cataracts if they're not removed. And sin is like cataracts that grow up over the eyes of our hearts, so we can't see the glory of Jesus Christ, and we can't feel the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what was going on in us before God saved us. Every single one of us. Remember? Remember those days? I mean, we could know facts about Jesus, know details about Jesus' life, but it's just like, ho-hum, I'd rather, you know, watch football or whatever it might be. We didn't see his glory. We weren't captured by him. We didn't love him. And that's tragic because Jesus Christ is the most glorious reality in the universe. Jesus is the center of world history. Jesus is the point of world history. And here we are, our sin has blinded us. So we're ignoring Jesus and wandering around, loving food, you know, and nothing wrong with food, nothing wrong with entertainment, but loving those things more than Jesus Christ. But that's where we were because of our sin. But God loves us. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, remember, this is what happened when God saved you. If you've been saved, here's what took place. God reached down from heaven because of what Jesus did, and the master surgeon, he cut off those cataracts of sin that were blinding your heart. And all of a sudden, when you saw Jesus, it was entirely different. Maybe the same facts, but beautiful, glorious Jesus. And, and you tasted for the first time the greatest joy in the universe, worshiping Jesus Christ, beholding Jesus Christ, loving Jesus Christ. Remember that change that took place when God cut those cataracts of sin off and you could see. Now, the problem is that as we're living in this world, salvation hasn't taken all of our sin away. It's broken the power of sin, but we still have remaining sin and will until heaven. And so sin keeps trying to grow back, right? You have felt that this week. So this week's lusts or greed or pride or bitterness has affected us. So all of us have some level of cataracts over the eyes of our heart even right now. So here's what I'm praying God will do. I need this and you need this. We all need this. Is that God will come and use his word this morning and that he will cut those cataracts from this last week or maybe it's been this from this last month or maybe it's been for the last five years but God can come no matter how long those cataracts have been there and he can cut them away this morning and this morning you'll be able to see the glory of Jesus Christ let's pray together and ask God to do that father I pray that right now you would pour out a fresh work of your Holy Spirit in this place I pray that you would touch each heart that's here through your word, by the power of the Spirit, that you would cut away whatever sin has grown over our eyes this past week so we could once again see and feel the glory, the majesty, the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so that as we see Jesus' glory, our hearts would be so filled that we would be freed to, to move out into the world with love sacrificial love, seeking to 
alleviate suffering wherever we find it, especially eternal suffering among the people around us. So Lord, please, only you can do that. I can't do that. We can't make that happen, but we can ask you to do it. And you promised to come and do it. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So what I want to do today, and Lord willing, next Friday, is unpack this passage. So today it's going to be verses 5 through 7, and the next Friday, Lord willing, 8 through 11. This is one of the most clear passages I have found in the Bible that displays the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's read the whole passage, though, verses 5 through 11. Here's what Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of God the Father. Powerful passage. So in verses 5 through 6, Paul tells us what was true about Jesus before he was born. So before Bethlehem, before the manger, what was true of Jesus before he was born? And let's read verses 5 and 6 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in verse 6, Paul says that before Jesus was born, before he was born of the Virgin Mary, before Christmas and the events we celebrate there, Jesus was in the form of God. Now, that word could be misunderstood because in the English language, the word form tends to be what something looks like. So if you go to the beach and, and your son builds a little mountain of of sand, you might say, well, that, that's in the form of a mountain. It's about that high, but it looks like a mountain, right? That's what the word form means in English. Something, it looks like something. In the Greek language, the word form has a different meaning. Not just what something looks like, but what something actually is. Any philosophy majors out there study Plato's forms? I didn't think so. Okay, never mind. Okay, but so the English language, the word form means what something looks like, in the Greek language, the word form means what something is. And so when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he means this is that Jesus had the same substance, nature as God. Bruce Ware is a professor at a seminary back in the States, and here's his definition of this Greek word. He says that the Greek word form means the inner substance or very nature of something. And so for Jesus to be in the form of God means he's the very substance, the very nature of God himself. Now, let me explain what that does and doesn't mean. It means that Jesus is fully God, absolutely, fully God. But that does not mean that Jesus and God the Father and God the Spirit are three different gods. 
The Bible is very clear that there is one God, and the one God is three persons. The Bible is very clear on that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And each person of the Trinity is not one-third of God or one of three gods. There's one God in three persons, and each person of the Trinity is fully God. Now, there's, there's mystery there, but it's God. One God, three persons. And so that's why Paul says Jesus is in the form of God. Before he was born, the form of God, which means he has the same substance and nature as God because he is fully God. Paul says the same thing in the rest of verse 6 with different words. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he had equality with God before he was born, but he didn't grasp onto that. We'll come to that in a moment. But he did have equality with God the Father. So think about what that means. To have equality with something means you share the same essential attributes as that something. Okay? So a circle has equality with a circle because they both share the same essential attributes of what it means to be a circle. Right? A man has equality with a man because they both share the same essential attributes of what it means to be a man. And so for Jesus to have equality with God the Father means that Jesus has the same essential attributes as God the Father has. Okay, so in verse 6, Paul wants to make sure we understand very clearly that before Jesus was born, he was in the form of God, which means same substance, same nature as God, and he had equality with God, which means the same essential attributes as God. Jesus was, is, and will be fully God. Now, this is a crucial doctrine for us to understand. This is like a foundational doctrine for your own individual Christian life and for our life here at Grace Church. So I want to make sure that we build this foundation rock solid this morning. Jesus Christ is fully God. Let me show you two other scriptures outside of this passage just to strengthen that point. Look at Romans chapter 9 verse 5. In this passage, Paul is describing the Jewish people. And look at what he says about them in verse 5. To them, to the Jewish people, belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from their race, from the Jewish race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Do you see that? Who is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So Jesus Christ is God over all. Do you see that? Okay, one more just to strengthen this foundation. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Look at how Peter describes Jesus Christ. This is the first verse of Peter's second letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our God, and Jesus Christ is our Savior. So before Jesus was born, Paul wants to make sure we understand, let's look back now at Philippians 2, Paul wants to make sure we understand that Jesus was fully 
God, equal to God the Father in every way. That's why we say he is God the Son, because he's equal to the Father. So everything that it means for the Father to be God is also true of Jesus as God. So let, let me give you a couple of specifics about what's true of God the Father and show you how it's, that means it's also true of God the Son. So for example, God the Father has always been from eternity past. Okay, go back as far as you want in time. God the Father's there. God has no beginning. God the Father, no one made God the Father. God has been from eternity past. There's never a time when he was not. And because Jesus is equal to the Father, that means that Jesus has been from eternity past with no beginning. Go back as far as you want in time. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, eternity past. Another example. The Bible teaches that God the Father is sovereign over everything, just like Amy was praying this morning. That means God's authority rules over everything. From what every cell in your body does, to the, the orbits of the planets, to the affairs of nations, God is sovereign, complete control over everything. And because Jesus is equal to the Father, that means that Jesus also shares with the Father sovereign authority over everything. So from eternity past, Jesus has been sharing with the Father sovereign authority. Another example, perfect knowledge. God the Father has perfect knowledge, which means God knows everything. Past, present, future, everything, perfectly, consciously, all the time. God's perfect knowledge. And because Jesus is equal to the Father, that means that Jesus has perfect knowledge of everything, past, present, and future, perfectly, consciously, all the time. How about power? Okay, God the Father has infinite power. I love thinking about, remember, spoke and a universe existed. So how big is the universe? Scientists are always telling us it's bigger because they're having better ways to measure it. But the recent, most recent figures I've seen is that the universe has over 50 million, not stars, that would be amazing, but 50 million galaxies whose average size is 100 light years wide. Did you hear that? Let there be a universe. Boom! 50 million light years, I'm sorry, 50 million galaxies that are, what was the number again? 100,000 light years wide. I mean, that's power, friends. That's power that we should just tremble before. Amazing power. And because Jesus is equal to the Father, Jesus has that infinite power. In fact, Colossians says all things were created through Jesus. One last example of that. From eternity past, God the Father has experienced perfect joy in the fellowship of the Trinity. Zach was praying about this when we had our little group praying up here before the service. God the Father has always had perfect joy in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so because Jesus is equal to the Father, that means that from eternity past, all Jesus had ever known was perfect joy in the fellowship of the Father, fellowship with the Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit, perfect joy, fellowship together. Are you seeing what we're talking about here? Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus 
is fully God. Now, that's who Jesus was before he was born in eternity past. It, has, your, has your vision of Jesus gotten larger? I hope it has with this. This is amazing to think about. And then, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit created the beautiful heavens, this amazing earth with lush forests and hot deserts and fish in the sea, right? And God created Adam and Eve, gave them amazing bodies and gave them life and created all of us. And tragically, Adam and Eve and all of us have rebelled against God. Here's this beautiful, glorious, joyful creator giving us life and this earth. We've all turned our back on him, not interested. Not interested, turning our back on him. That's what the Bible calls sin. And because of that sin, we face God's punishment forever. All of humanity rightfully face God's punishment forever. Now, the only way our sins could be forgiven, the only way we could be forgiven and reconciled to God and not punished forever by God, was if God came to earth, became a man, and was punished in our place our sin that's the only way we could be saved and so at at great cost to himself God the Father said son will you go and in great love Jesus said I will go and it's not like we were all down here saying save us we want to be reconciled to you no what happened when Jesus came crucify him and we all would have been saying the same thing because of our sin And so in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, Jesus became a man so he could be punished in our place for our sins on the cross. So we've talked about what Paul says is true of Jesus before he became a man. Now I want to unpack what did it mean for Jesus to become a man. Paul tells us in verses 6 and 7, Let's read those verses again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is he did not let the powers he had as God and the privileges he had as God and the the position he had as God, he didn't let that keep him from from laying those aside and becoming a man. He didn't consider equality with God something to to hold on to. He was willing to, to let go of those powers and those privileges and those prerogatives and and become a man. And so we read in verse seven, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This means he took on human flesh, and a sinless human nature. And human flesh, and even a sinless human nature, is so far below God that it's like making yourself nothing. He was fully God, laid aside those positions, privileges, powers, prerogatives, made himself nothing, became a man. Now this doesn't mean he ever stopped being God. Never, he didn't lay aside being God. He just laid aside the powers, the privileges, 
the position he had as God. He was always God the whole time on earth. But to become a man, he had to lay aside powers, privilege, position. Now, here's an illustration I heard. This is also from Bruce Ware, who I got the quote from about the form of God earlier. He wrote a really helpful book called The Man Christ Jesus. I would encourage you to read it. Here's an illustration that I, that I heard from him. So he says, imagine a, a great king who rules over a vast kingdom. And he has infinite wealth and absolute authority. He lives in a palatial palace, which gives him every imaginable comfort, entertainment, everything you could possibly want. This incredible palatial mansion palace is where he lives. He eats delicious meals prepared by the best chefs available in the land. Just amazing meals are prepared for him. He wears the most warm and comfortable and like climate suitable, uh, kingly, cool clothes, all right? He's kept healthy by the best doctors. He can go wherever he wants, buy whatever he wants, do whatever he wants. He's the king over this kingdom. But he knows that there are some homeless beggars in his kingdom, and he cares about them. He's compassion for them. And he wants to find out how they're living and what he can do. And so he chooses to become one of them so he can learn. And so he puts off his kingly clothes and puts on the tattered, dirty clothes of a homeless beggar. He moves out of his palace to live on the streets. Pretty soon he becomes hungry. Now, he is still the king, never stops being the king. Very important part of this illustration. But he's laid aside the privileges and the, the prerogatives of being king. Because he was still king, he, I mean, he could have ordered the chefs, bring, bring me something to go or whatever you call it in this country, take out, whatever you could. Anyway, or he could have gone to any restaurant and ordered whatever he wanted to. He's the king after all, but he laid that aside. And so instead of doing that, he goes behind restaurants and digs through their trash to try to find food that's been thrown out so he can eat. When he got tired and wanted to sleep, again, he was still the, the king. He could have gone back to his palace or he could have afforded any of the best suites in any of the hotels that were around, but he'd laid aside those privileges and prerogatives. And so he laid down in, in an alley to sleep. When he was mistreated by people around him, he could have immediately called for the Soldiers to come and rescue him. He was the king after all. But he'd laid aside those powers and privileges, and so he was mistreated, beaten up. So do you see the point of this illustration? He never stopped being the king. But to become a homeless beggar, he had to lay aside the powers and privileges and the positions that he had as king. And that's what Jesus did for us. He never stopped being God, but he laid aside powers, position, privileges of being God. And so that's why the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was born as a baby. And Michelle's getting close here, okay? Maybe this next week she'll give birth. But just picture a baby in a manger, which is a feeding trough. God, who has always been, who has infinite power, complete sovereignty, perfect knowledge, this is God. 
And he laid aside powers, positions, privilege. He was born as a baby. Gospel writers tell us that Jesus increased in wisdom as a young boy. How can somebody with perfect knowledge and wisdom increase in wisdom? It's because he laid aside the use of his perfect knowledge and wisdom. And he was increasing in wisdom as a man. Never stopped being God, but laid aside powers, privileges, position. John tells us that after walking all morning, Jesus got tired. The one who spoke 50 million, 100 light years wide galaxies gets tired. Well, he laid aside his infinite power. Matthew tells us he became hungry because he took on human flesh with its frailties. The gospel writers tell us that on the cross, Jesus suffered excruciating, horrifying pain. How can God suffer pain? It's because he took on a human body which can suffer pain and which can die. And that's what Jesus experienced. So see, that's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, why did he do this? It's because he loves us so much that even though he was fully God, he was willing to make himself nothing, to lower himself, lower himself, lower himself, lower himself at great cost to himself. And finally, the cost of dying on the cross, which we will talk about next week. Why did he do that? Because he loves us. My dad likes to use the analogy of a, like if you're at the top of a staircase, and the top of the staircase means fully God and with all the powers and privileges exercised, and then the bottom of the staircase is becoming man, so making yourself nothing. And because Jesus loved us so much, he took that first step and, and laid aside the exercise of his complete sovereignty and took another step and laid aside his infinite power and took another step and laid aside his perfect knowledge and wisdom, took another step, he, he took on human frailty, human weakness, step by step by step by step by step, laying aside powers, laying aside privileges until he became one of us. Now, it's a little hard for us to feel that, I mean, what's so bad about being one of us? You know, I'm one of us. It's all right. We're not God. So think about it like this. What if you, for three and a half years, decided to become an ant? A-N-T, an ant, okay, with an ant body and an ant brain. So you laid aside all the powers, privileges that you have now, and you chose to become an ant for three and a half years. Would that be significant lowering of yourself? Yes, absolutely. Now, human to ant is nothing compared to God to human. Why did Jesus do that? It's because he loves us. Again, we were not asking him to come. We were not saying, please save us. We were sinning. Our backs were turned against him. We were shaking our fists in his face. We don't want you. No. We don't. So in spite of us, we didn't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. But he loved us, cared about us, had compassion for us. Now, I just want to press this home. I would guess some of you, because of what's happened this last week, or who knows how far back, but, but you have seriously struggled with whether God loves you or not. So if I can just bring one little application out of this just to speak to you, I think God wants you to hear this this morning. This shows you that God loves you. 
Why would Jesus do this? Why would he humble himself to this extent? Why would he become a man and ultimately face the cross? It's because he loves you. So no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bleak your situation seems, no matter how severe the trials are, no matter how hopeless the circumstances look, God loves you. Jesus loves you, and he will help you. So if, if you leave with one thing this morning, leave with, okay, I know I'm having a hard time seeing it, having a hard time feeling it. God does love me. I hope you can be strengthened in that. Be strengthened that God loves you. But what I want you to see from this is the glory of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and who lowered himself, lowered himself, lowered himself to become a man. Even though we didn't deserve it, we weren't asking for it, we didn't want it. We were there shouting, crucify him, and he came to save us. Now, what kind of God does that? We're talking about God here. I mean, the God of the universe could have just been a tyrant, right? God is not a tyrant. No one loves like God loves. No one has compassion like Jesus has compassion. No one cares like Jesus cares. Do you see that? That's why I said earlier that Jesus Christ is the most glorious reality in the universe. It's Jesus Christ. I mean, we know the, the Great Barrier Reef is like, wow, and it is. I haven't seen it, but I've heard from the Aussies, okay? And Yosemite in the States is an amazing you know, scenery, and there's all kinds of amazing things that God has made here, but none of those even come close to comparing to the, the in, infinite glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus' act of love in being born as a baby, walking this earth as a man, and going to the cross should just leave us speechless. Look at this. Jesus Christ, you are glorious. You are beautiful. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to live for your glory. So that are the cataracts of sin being cut away a little bit more right now? Are you seeing and feeling more of Jesus' glory? I need this, and you need this. Now, three takeaways from this passage. What does this mean for us? First, see Jesus' glory. See Jesus' glory. Some of you may be here and you're thinking, I don't see it. I don't see it. The reason you don't see it, if I can be so bold as to say so, is because of your sin. It's true. Jesus is infinitely glorious. This happened 2,000 years ago. He became a man, born as a baby, lived on the earth, went to the cross. It's true. He is the most spectacular, infinite glory of the universe. He's the center of history. He's the point of the whole universe. His glory is what everything is all about. And when we're not seeing it, the problem isn't that he isn't glorious. The problem is that we're sinfully blind. Please see that. Because if you see that, then you'll hear the next thing I'm going to say is good news. And that is because of what Jesus did, paying for the sin on the cross, if you will say, Father, cut away the, the blindness of sin. Forgive me for my sin. Help me to see. If you will pray that from the heart, I promise you, he will. He will. You'll see. 
I'll never forget when I was in junior high. I was having a hard time just like doing my homework and getting this, following the school lessons. And, and finally, we went, all the kids went to the little eye test. Remember those? You all went and did the eye test. And, uh, and the nurse thought I was, I was, I was joking because I, I couldn't make out any of the letters. None of them. And it turns out I just, I couldn't, I mean, I've, I've got really, I wear contacts and glasses depending on what's going on. But anyway, um, I'll never forget the first time I, I, I went to the eye doctor to pick up my glasses. Any of you have experienced this? Oh my! Trees, leaves, birds, there's mountains over there. It was really, really interesting. And that's what you'll experience. Father, forgive me for my sin through Jesus. Cut away those cataracts of sin that are blinding me. And you open up the word of God, you see who Jesus is, and he will use the word by the spirit, and you'll see. The blindness of sin will be cut away, and you'll see his glory. And you will love him, you will trust him, you'll worship him, and for the first time you'll taste the highest joy of the universe, knowing Christ. So, number one, see Jesus' glory. Number two, love Jesus' glory. As we go through life, as I said earlier, we're saved, but sin can come back in. It's those cataracts of sin are constantly trying to grow back over us. And so we need to take time every day, I would encourage you, take time every day where you put everything else aside and you come afresh before the Lord and you say, meet me now. Forgive me for yesterday's sin. Use your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Show me the glory of Jesus. Show me your glory in Jesus. And if, if every day we do that, we will more and more, those cataracts be cut away, cut away, cut away. We will see more and more and more and more of Jesus' glory. And we'll become more and more strong and more and more assured and more and more peaceful and more and more joyful and more and more loving. So see Jesus' glory. Secondly, love Jesus' glory by taking time regularly every day, if at all possible. And then third, live for Jesus' glory. What are you living your life for? What are you pursuing? Are you living your life for money? Nothing wrong with money. Don't live your life for money, though. Are you living your life for travel? Nothing wrong with travel. But don't live your life for travel. Are you, are you living your life for shopping or entertainment or whatever? What are, you, what are you living your life for? Listen, Jesus Christ is the infinite glory of the universe. And because of his glory, the most satisfying, right, appropriate purpose to live your life for is to make much of him and to display his glory. So don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Live for Jesus' glory. Stir up prayer, times in the word, worship, leading your family in the Lord. Become part of a home group where you love each other and care for each other. And then give your life to reaching out to people at your workplace, in your neighborhood who don't know the Lord and love them and share the gospel with them. God will open up doors for doing that. Join a home group. We'll, we'll help train you in how to do that. But give your life to to lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ, to exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, to loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't waste your life. What are you living for? Live for his glory. His glory is 
the purpose of the universe. You'll be in sync with the purpose of the universe, and no other purpose will satisfy you. So live for Jesus' glory. Live to make much of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who was fully God, humbled himself and became a man. We'll look next week at how he went to the cross. But that love, that compassion, that care is the infinite glory of the universe. Let's see his glory, let's love his glory, and let's live for his glory. Let's stand together. I want to pray this for us. Father, I pray that no heart would be untouched by your hand right now. I pray, Lord, that you would come upon those who've never seen the glory of Jesus. I pray that you'd bring them, Lord, to their knees before you today, that they would see how much you love them, that you would send your son, Jesus, that they would see, Jesus, how much you love them, that you would come and that they would ask you to forgive them, that they would ask you to cut away the cataracts of sin, and Lord, that you would show them your glory today, right now. I pray, Lord, for those who've been saved, but where there has been sin, the cataracts of sin growing back, and they're not seeing much, they're not feeling much, they're, honestly, they're more excited about other things than you, Lord Jesus, and your glory. God, convict them right now. Let them see that you are standing before them, inviting them, to come into the surgery room to have those cataracts cut away and that you will be faithful to do that as they pray and open up your word and study the scriptures. Lord, I pray for any of us who are not living for your glory. Truth be told, we're more excited about living for other things. And Lord, help, help us see there is no purpose more right, more fitting, more satisfying than living our lives to make much of Jesus Christ and his glory. Come and do that now, I pray in Jesus' name.